Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Beyond Queer Stories. Today, we have Shay Sullivan with us. Shay's an adjunct professor at UC Berkeley and Mills College. Shay, also a journey person, carpenter, and performance artist, received their PhD from the Cal- California Institute of Integral Studies. A self-identified gender identity non-participant, a survivor of the UCLA Gender Identity Research Clinic from 1963 to 1994, and a big old queer. Their 57-year front row seat to both the development of and the resistance to binary heteronormative gender birth assignments that inform their academic scholarship helps shape the conversations involved in the deconstruction of a medicalized construction of gender. In the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, gender in the the United States began to be constructed and defined within the medical industrial complex as essentially binary, male and female. Across the country, gender research clinics started popping up at universities such as Johns Hopkins and the University of California, Los Angeles. Their aims were both diagnostic and corrective. They sought to understand the parameters of, quote, normal and natural, and fix those who didn't fit. This intimate exhibition examines the construction of gender through the story of one's child experience at UCLA's Gender Research Clinic and their resistance to the enforced practices of conversion therapy. Shay Sullivan began this project as an autoethnographic exploration that developed into their PhD dissertation. During their research, they made a groundbreaking discovery. In the restricted boxes of the Robert Stoller papers at UCLA was a 1970 file that included a transcribed 68-page oral interrogation of Shay as an 8-year-old being seen at the school's gender identity research clinic. This file, file number 24, Shay writes, is a historical document and record of my body as a site of data collection. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So the first question is, um, what identities do you feel most influence your experiences? I think for me, the if I have to choose identity for the sake of being marked is, I think Butch still fits, mostly because I live into my 40s, probably under that identification. And so for me, Butch was gender neutral. It wasn't female or male for me. I still kind of feel that way about it. Um, even though the politics around it are very clear these days, right? Which, you know, with the term butch, gender queer works as well. I don't use nonconforming because nonconforming recenters the natural narrative of the medical industrial complex. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, queer. Yeah. I love the use of the word queer. I use the word queer for my identity. So there are differences in terms of how people respond to that word generationally. So I'd love to hear a little bit about why you use that word. I came out in 1979. So I was in the throes of uh, the HIV politics of the time of the 80s and early 90s. And so the language of queer re-articulated as a reclaiming of a powerful position for a lot of us. And I still have conversations with my elders um, who are challenged by that word. I had a student this semester who was an older student who was challenged by this word, a trans woman in my class. 
that because their experience, of course, was that it is incredibly violent, right? And so the violent history of that can't be lost on the younger generation or people coming up or myself that use the language. I explain why I used it, why I still use it, how it's an umbrella term, um, also recognizing the violence, uh, often with psychiatric violence and electric shock therapy and all of the things that go along with the generations before myself. So that's kind of how I use the word queer. Mm -hmm. I, I don't use the ED. I'm, I'm challenged by people queering things mm. only because as a politic in the 80s and 90s, it, what we weren't queering things, like everything wasn't queer. There was a particular narrative with it. So I'm also being pushed as I should be in my current understanding of it to listen. So back to the teeter-totter kind of thing. I feel like I'm listening to a younger generation have a particular way of everything is queering to an older generation and knowing both personally, right, their relationship to that word. And me just coming to the word because it's, it's an in-your-face word for me. Like I use dyke more than I used lesbian in my 20s and 30s, right, because it was a political stance wasn't anti-lesbian. It was just a dyke had a particular narrative with it in the community. So it sounds like you transitioned to various identity labels as well throughout the years. Yeah, I think that I think most of us do, right? I think right. most of us come into awareness of ourselves in a particular way. And then there's a like when I came out in 1979, if you don't count the clinic, I came out to myself in 79 mm -hmm. and I was in high school in, in Santa Monica. So there was West Hollywood and, and that whole genre. It wasn't okay. The androgynous, separatist, lesbian, particular narrative didn't suit me. And I thought I was so excited. Like I found a community and then this community told me I couldn't have my gay boyfriends. Mm -hmm. And it didn't make any sense to me. Right. And so a lot of my early years and the androgyny so i got called androgynous a lot until the reclamation of the word butch mm -hmm. was not a negative as it reclaimed itself in the 80s yeah i believe gender and narrative and identity politics are subjective in time and place i also think that they're a shorthand right if you want to date mm -hmm. <laughs> like you know what i mean like here's the list you hit these markers like right. we can at least have coffee right exactly yeah yeah because the language can be so tricky to navigate sometimes yeah. because they're you know it's great there's a lot of new language around identity and then also when it comes to dating kind of seeing how people cater categorize who they're open to dating is complex sometimes that's that's why i claim the word queer also because to me that feels the most open and fluid um, and I appreciate how that term encompasses that for me. Yeah. I showed my students go fish this semester. And uh, the scene where the butch is being thrown up against the wall for having sex with her gay boyfriends and trying to separate out the concept of sex and intimacy, mm -hmm. right, in the women's community is particularly a hard narrative because a lot of women in the general scene are not allowed to have our own desire, whether you're cis or not, or however you identify. And so we're not allowed to trick or just have sex in a particular way. And the question of, well, you're not a real lesbian. Mm -hmm. 
right? Because you had sex with a gay man, right? In that in that narrative, like the whole gold star concept, right? Right. Most of us don't come to our desire uh, without having explored. And nowadays, that's even more broad, right? I mean, sure. we see that it's it that it's there's an opening, and we also have the rise of of turfs again. Mm, sure do. Like they haven't gone away, right? And they're finding more ground. I think. I said at one of my art shows, I got asked a question, and I think if you, I think in the women's community, you're seeing turfs, you know, the trans radical exclusionary feminist and the radical feminists. Radical feminists trying to pull themselves out of not being turfs. Mm -hmm. But if you scratch them long enough, they're pretty turfy. Mm. Scratch and sniff turfs. (laughs) Scratch them long enough, I smell your turfness. (laughs) I mean, you know, I I think that, you know, I've lived long enough that I feel confident in being able to say that, right? I mean, if we Mm -hmm. look at the larger political narratives... I mean, we're also talking about gender and identity in the Western construction of gender, right? Because in the West, we form this narrative of naming our identity in a particular way, where in other places around the globe, same-sex desire isn't categorized as aberrant or deviant Mm -hmm. outside of a Western narrative, right? Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. So there are plenty of places that you have same-sex desire and you don't have the rigidity of what the West says being a member of the LGBTQ community is, mm-hmm. right? Like the identity politics in the U.S. provide us some freedom in particular ways, right? And we claim the identity to, to seek our humanity. But in other places around the globe, that isn't necessarily the case. Mm-hmm. Or... One could say decolonizing, right, in an understanding that many cultures have had many desires. Like queer and trans people aren't new. We're not new. Right. (laughs) We've been here for a while. Yeah, and it's interesting, like you said, to see how those identities are valued or devalued in different cultures and how, like, transness is so normalized in other cultures. But here we struggle with that in U.S. culture and, like, a lot of cultures, but it, like you said, trans people have been around forever. And in some places they're even put at kind of like a higher value of like having this uniqueness and different understanding and perspective of life than cis people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Holy people, third, third gendered people though. As a white person, one has to be really particularly careful in claiming that particular identity, right? Unless your culture, I'm Irish I have yet to find someone in particularly my historical context mm-hmm. where third gender is used, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of indigenous populations, a lot of other cultures, right, have that identity. It is not an identity that white trans and white queer people can necessarily take on. Right, right. Right. It's a co-opting of a particular narrative around third gendered space. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important for those of us that are white to really be clear and continue to do our work, right? Yeah, for sure. I kind of want to know more about um this UC Berkeley thing without you going too much into your story. Because I didn't know there was like anything at all about that, like period. 
like reading your bio and like hearing it was the first time I ever acknowledged like not even acknowledged was aware of it being a thing mm-hmm. so like could you talk a little bit more about that before going mm-hmm. to your story yeah that'll be a good transition into it so um, it was at UCLA this particular clinic mm-hmm. um, so they were uh, a lot and we know that eugenics is a popular kind of concept right in the medical industrial complex and so post-world war ii there were trans people coming to clinics like john hopkins and other places seeking medical procedures right in california specifically we see the linkage between sterilizations of folks of color and gender apparatuses um, being produced in these sites right um, a co-work, a co-friend of mine who we do a lot of work, Morrow's grandmother was sterilized at a clinic in California at, at the same time uh, the gender clinic was doing things and the, one of the doctors had worked in both places. And so we're doing a lot of work trying to connect an intergenerational, interracial concept mm-hmm. of these clinics. Um, so we're looking specifically at the post-World War II development of what it means to have a California body. So located specific, right? And the California body then is through media, right? We see these uh, inaccurate understandings of bodies, right? And so the clinic first started looking at effeminate boys. So there's a very – Richard Green just died, and he did a longitude study on effeminate boys. Pretty famous. Lots of people do a lot of work about it. It's pretty well known. It turned into the book Sissy Boy Syndrome. We see that happening pre-1984ish where they decide to take homosexuality out mm-hmm. of the DSM, mm-hmm. but they put in gender identity disorder. Right. Right. So basically, if you dress Ken as Barbie, which is an actual test, you're screwed. Mm-hmm. So it starts as cross-gender identification in 1965, and you can see through my transcript their framing of it, is that if you... Some of the questions they asked me as an eight-year-old, you know, were pretty ridiculous. So it, it, they asked me if I wanted children, if I wanted a boy or a girl, right, to get gauge me. And if I had said a boy or a girl, it was a marker. I either was marking cross-gender identification or I wasn't. It becomes gender identity disorders, 1965, Stoller's credited with that term at a conference. Mm-hmm. I've become part of a study, a tomboy study that doesn't get published. Right. So even within the context of gender and sexuality, right, we see that the study of uh, a femininity in in men, masculine cis people, right, is always held at a particular place in time. George Reeker is a well-known Christian religious person who took his work to the religious right. And that's where you see the prolification of conversion therapy within the religious communities, mm-hmm. right? And church camps, which are still going on. Right. And so these sites are where they start to develop. There's a very famous case of a twin, one of them having their penis burned mm-hmm. off from John Hopkins. Um, and so they want to, Mooney wants to raise them as a girl. Right. Right. And so these clinics are sites of data. And so it's interesting, Zucker, who's up in Canada who I don't know well, right? Well, this is interesting. A friend yeah. a friend quoted my dissertation on a Medium article, mm-hmm. uh, and 20 minutes later, I got an email in my email box from Zucker asking if he could have a copy of my um, dissertation. So it was like, I don't even know this man. You're asking for a copy of my dissertation. So the continued extraction, 
of data off my body or our bodies or other bodies, right, is a continuation to support the pathology that's actually an inaccurate understanding of bodies, right, Mm -hmm. and gender. Mm -hmm. So that's basically what they do. I found a document in Stoller's boxes where in 63 he sends out to the clinical staff, he wants them to define the, uh, these terms, right? So they can come to a uniformity in the language. You know, and it's male, female, masculine, it's gay, bi, it's like all the words that we use now, mm-hmm. right? And I haven't been able to have time to go back to see what the staff answered. Mm-hmm. But the fact that he's trying to find a uniforming language talks about how they, as mostly white men mm-hmm. within the medical industrial complex, right, are making the nomenclature and the language and the pathology, right, as they go. And in my transcript, they actually talk about in the beginning that they're starting at zero with these girls, right? And so really, they didn't know what they were doing. Well, I think that's a good like sneak peek into like your full story. So we'd love to hear kind of your story you have for us today and what your experience is. Oh, wow. So uh, I was born and raised in Santa Monica, California until I was 18. There was uh, several things I don't really talk about a lot in, in my dissertation or my work around mental health things in my family. And so I had a lot of surgeries. I had four surgeries by the time I was five years old. I was assaulted by a pedophile up the street. And then I was at the clinic all by third grade. And so whether it's all of the splitting or all of the things, right, what I come to understand, I don't, I have some vague memory of being at the clinic. I know I went to UCLA. I know that there was trauma. I know that the markers that they used in the effeminate boy study, which were the mother needs to step back from the boy, a father figure, male figure needs to step up. Like there were some specific things is when my father stepped away from my life and the wars became, became about my clothes and my athletics and all of the things, right? So by 79, when I decided to come out, I was a pretty full-blown uh, addict from all the self-loathing. And so I come out in this particular era. I get kicked out at 18. Middle-class white folks kick their kids out by sending them to college if they can, which they did. They told me I could move out on my own and support myself. Fort Bragg could be my next address or I could go out of state to college. And I got up to Washington State. I asked to move home. My mother said, we think it's best that you stay there. And so from that moment at 19 till I was 22, I pretty much ingested as much chemicals as I possibly could because the the longitude of the self-loathing that had been planted by the medical industrial complex was deep, Mm -hmm. still is deep, still hard to pull some of that apart. I got sober at 22. In two weeks, I'll be sober 34 years. I shot drugs with gay men that are dead. Like I can tell you all the party stories that were great. Like it wasn't all bad. I remember living in a house with uh, same time that Paris is burning and we're seeing all the houses on the East Coast. I was living in a house with four gay men and we were having our own parties like we created our own families, which was important because we didn't have community necessarily. I was in Lacey, Washington, Olympia, Washington at this time. At some point in 83, I moved to Seattle. I, I don't remember. I was too in, intoxicated all the time. But I worked on the float for the gay pride uh, for Tugs, the bar I worked in. So I bar- 
I mark that as the moment that I got to Seattle. And so my politics, my work with HIV, my best friend, we were the three first three dykes that went to get tested in 86. Um, and the little gay boy said, well, you're not high risk. <laughs> and <laughs> my friend uh, said, what part of sleeping with faggots and doing sex work doesn't make us high risk? <laughs> and uh, he was horrified. Um, and we tested. And my friend became one of the first on-record lesbians with HIV. And we did uh we started needle exchange out of her van in 1986 on 2nd and Pike, which was illegal. At the same time, we were in the middle of the sex wars, right, the porn wars. A lot of us worked, including myself, worked at uh, the uh, the amusement center, which was also called The Lusty Lady. Um, we decided to do a lesbian erotica show at the gay bar, The Wild Rose, which is still there in Seattle. People were threatening to protest it. <laughs> like it was right in the middle of that real sex positive kind of porn war thing happening in and out of academia. That place was packed. <laughs> like was packed. No one protested. <laughs> so I was part of the pro sex movement. We moved to the 80s, did HIV work, all of those things. I've been a carpenter for 30 years because butches, and I didn't know that I was actually kind of smart because I'm dyslexic. That's a generational thing. Mm -hmm. And butches did. I do security. I've done the bar. I've done the door. I wasn't going to go. I couldn't go back in the closet. Like when I came out in 79, my friend was like, well, you tried harder than anyone we know to be straight. I'm like, wow. And when I did my dissertation and was reading my transcript, what we know about sexual abuse is you either become very virginous or you start acting out. And I started acting out sexually and had a lot of sex, inappropriate sex, that I now know that was me trying to perform heteronormativity based on what the clinic and the family was trying to do, that I got in my head that that meant I was straight, right? So part of my dissertation work was being reflective of the moments and trying to analyze like my life and the data. Fast forward, I've been living all over the place. I'm in the Bay Area, 2000, and uh, I fall and hurt myself. Uh, I end up at community college. I end up to get retrained. I transfer to Mills College, and my life totally changed. And 14 years later, straight through minus one year, uh, I got my PhD and uh, found out I was pretty smart, that I'm actually kind of an intellectual in a particular way that I have learning difference and that I'm oral and verbal um, is how I take in my data. So having people edit and do those things really has helped me and people support learning difference, right? And so it's important to talk about learning difference. And I tell that to my students. Um, I show a lot of film because uh, I find that it connects with people that can't write. Boom, find the dissertation, go call the library one day down at UCLA and find out how to get in these boxes. Um, the restricted box, there's 96 boxes and two of them are restricted. The librarian said, uh, well, give me your name. I'll go look. So who's, who has a file? I mean, I did vote for Angela Davis when I was 18. So I imagine I'm on some kind of file for all my politics, but <laughs> who has a file? It's like 40 years later. And he calls me the next day and says, oh yeah, you have a file, file 24. And I'm just like, I just, I've. I start shaking and I don't know what to say. I can't speak. He's like, do you want to come in and get it? And I'm like, what? Um, no, I, is there another way? So I get a PDF sent. Long story short, it's, uh, it's great firsthand data. 
right? And so this transcript, this interrogation, there were eight doctors and my parents and myself as an eight-year-old. And it's an interrogation if you read it. They're brutal to my mother in the Freudian way, and they're just hammering me. Dr. Newman specifically hammers me. Like They ask me how boys become boys in the beginning and girls become girls. And my answer, which is my answer today, which is at eight with 10 adults, no one having my best interest, I said, we just want to be what we want to be which is uh, pretty profound for an eight-year-old standing in a room of adults. They had me draw on the board, the draw the doll test kinds of thing. They asked me when I was 28 and I was married and I had children. And I'm reading this thing going, I'm eight. I'm eight. (laughs) Can't fathom 28. (laughs) Right. I'm I'm eight, right? And you you want children, you want a boy or a girl. I say I want twins. So throughout the transcript, I'm not giving them what they want. Like, I'm outsmarting them in these particular ways. Um, There's also very difficult information in there, too. Like, they confirmed some of my family stories and gave me more information than I think I was prepared for. I really didn't read the transcript till six months after my mother died. And there was just a lot in there that was really difficult to try to analyze and write about. And so that's kind of brings us up to the art show kind of thing that I'm doing right now with the work is trying to present it in a different way than just a book, though I'm trying to write the book. But we have four pictures. I hang the transcript with clothespins, like hanging the laundry out. So the transcript is set up. The doctors are talking. Then they interview my parents. Then I come in and they interview. And then we all leave and then they talk about us. And so that is amazing data to have as a researcher. It's absolutely horrifying to read people talk about you (laughs) and try to analyze it through discourse analysis or what, what I've done in my work. And so that's kind of my story. So now I'm kind of here at 57. I've been out for 40 years this year, um, which is, you know, just really, wow. Like that's a long time. So when I say I've had a front row seat, I could go at any point in my life right now and tell you more stories, right? And, uh, but I have been, I was at the March on Washington. I was actually at the Dyke March the night before, which was a bigger march, and they had more security. They had snipers on the roof, right, and all kinds of things because women scare men, <laughs> right, in, you know, in that sense. And so that's kind of the story in a nutshell, right? You start there, I end here, and – it's a work in progress, right? I think that being on the front line has cost me a lot. But I also don't know how to still be fighting, right? Because homonormativity is just as violent as heteronormativity and respectability right. politics, right? And the whiteness of the queer community continually centering itself as community, as the voice of the community, as center and norm, which it's neither. <laughs> Stormy Daniel. Miss Majors, Marsha P, Sylvia Rivera, and trans people, right? Right. If we look at our, if we bring our history forward, and that's also part of the work I do, right, is, is to center and decenter whiteness as the narrative, which for my work is, it, it makes it challenging, right, in, in this particular way, because white folks sent their kids to go get fixed, whether it's bulimia or whatever, because they have a faith in the system that communities of color don't. 
because communities of color have been the communities that they've extracted right data from, whether it's gynecology violence, whether it's Tuskegee, right? There's a different history and different relationship to the medical industrial complex. Though poor whites too are included in some of that. We can't we can't not look at the class stuff around within the white in whiteness, right? But we also have to ask ourselves as white queers, when and how do we step up and back? And we need to step back far more than we we are as as whatever that community narrative is. I think that's kind of you know the nutshell. Yeah, thank you for sharing all that. Yeah, that was a lot. That was really good. I appreciate all of your <laughs> story. When you found your document and file, how did you feel when you read all of that? I mean, like you said, you were eight years old. So how mm-hmm. did like you? How did those emotions come back at you? Well, I don't drink, so I sat there with some chocolate. All my friends said, you need to read it with somebody there. And I'm like, I'm not. I'm an Aries. I'm not doing that. I'm sitting in bed with chocolate. Right? <laughs> um, it's been difficult. It's difficult, right? It's difficult, and it's powerful, right? There was a way I got to see myself saying, basically, are we allowed to cuss on this thing? Oh, yeah. Say whatever you yeah, want. Yeah, so basically, it was like, fuck you, people. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. fuck you, people. And... uh and I'm still damaged by it, right? I'm still, no matter how much therapy I've had or work I've done or whatever, like I still, I got called scum the other day by someone because they were mad people were calling kids they and them. And I'm like, stop trying to put your heteronormative value system on the rest of us. Like we're tired, straight agenda. <laughs> like, And I got called scum. And it triggers that place, right, where I have more skills these days, but it triggers that place of aberrant, deviant, sick, pedophile i mean i remember a woman pulling her kids away from me in the bathroom when i was 18 right and so all of that is still there and it reminded me a lot of that but it also reminded me that i'm still here and i have a responsibility to all of us that aren't here all the trans and queer folks that are dead from this kind of practice of conversion therapy or are not present in particular ways through alcohol and drugs or other ways that self-loathing manifests itself. So I feel like I have a responsibility um, to do that and to talk about it. Like part of the dissertation is I interviewed three of the doctors in 2015 that were actually there in 1970. Oh, wow. Which was also really gross. And they kept trying to extract data from me. Um, I kept saying, after you answer my questions, I'll be happy <laughs> to talk to what kind of data, like more data about you as a yeah, person. Yeah, yeah, I was a lab rat. Like Dr. Green, the wow. first time we had contact in an email and during my master's, he said he remembered me. He remembered me having red hair. He asked me what my gender identification was now. So just it's trying like, to be like, oh, let me make this more longitudinal. Let me keep collecting oh, more data. Right. Wow, that's right. disturbing. So that- the woman doctor, Dr. Kirkpatrick, asked me when I was leaving her house if I'd ever been in love. And I I had randomly called her out of the blue and I was able to go there. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't really prepared. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was like, yeah, you know, like, yeah, of course. But by the time I got to my car, I wanted to take a shower. Like, are you trying to absolve yourself? Mm-hmm. Right. We didn't like, damage you that much. You've been right. In we love. didn't. Yeah. Like, what were you? Like, yeah, I've been in love. And then I realized that that was one of those ways in which they 
again, extracting data from me in a particular mm. way instead of saying, I'm really sorry we harmed you, right? And Dr. Newman doesn't believe when I asked, you know, that I thought the clinic was a site of violence, right? Mm -hmm. And doesn't adamantly doesn't believe that it was a site of violence, right? And so it's like Zucker emailing me 20 minutes after the article on Medium, right? It's like, oh, wow, like you, why... I, why are you asking for my dissertation? I mean, mm -hmm. I didn't give it to him because I'm not going to help the enemy, but. Yeah. You know, yeah. So. And just to kind of, would you mind? Cause I'm familiar with Zucker because I don't know why APA let him speak at APA in Toronto, but they did and they made it kind of a debate. Um, but can you just, for our listeners, let them know a little bit about why that felt like a violation, who that, who he is. So he's one of the leading, uh, psychologist in Canada that worked at the gender clinic in Toronto for over 30 years who believes in conversion therapy. And so I don't. So, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So I think it's a pathology created by white men mm -hmm. and I, uh, in white supremacy and the way in which we control bodies in the biopolitical sense, right? We won't go too Foucault in here, but right. So in that sense, he still believes in that kind of, a choice. He thinks it's a choice. Mm -hmm. And so I felt violated because the email was so rude. Hey, Prof Sullivan, um, can I basically get a copy of your dissertation or should I look it up on ProQuest? Like, no respect. Like, one, I'm a doctor, too. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, now. <laughs> like, yeah. no respect. Just that whole way, that paternalistic, that's the word I've been trying to get to, that paternalistic whiteness, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Which isn't gendered, by the way, but in his case, it's gendered, right? That paternalistic way in which whiteness has an ownership to your story or your narrative, right? Mm -hmm. And so it felt gross. Mm -hmm. I was shaking, just like I was when I got the file, when I saw the email. Yeah. Like, it was global. Like, it's like, who has a file? Why is Zucker reaching out to me? <laughs> right? Yeah, I feel like I have a lot of feelings come up when I hear that he did that because I went with a group of other queer people that included a bunch of trans people to go to that talk in form of protest. And the scary thing was he filled the room to the point people were standing and the psychologists and practitioners who are in the room. So he does not call what he does conversion therapy. And he right. would adamantly deny that what he does is conversion therapy. And he is very strategic about how he presents what he does so that all the psychologists in the room who don't know about trans identity, who are there to edu quote, educate themselves on trans identity, we're thanking him and, you know, helping them understand this and helping them understand how to help their clients. And we adamantly were speaking up saying, no, like this, we were upset that APA gave him that space. Like we understand it was in Toronto, so it was in Canada. I don't know if they would have done the same thing had it been the APA here in the States, but it misled so many psychologists into thinking this is how you work with trans kids when they come into your office and it was terrifying yes well it's like if you looked at trans radical feminists right you, you just have to skip to the bottom line they mm -hmm. put it behind all this rhetoric but their mm -hmm. their rhetoric is the same you know trans women are men who cut their dicks off to come rape women mm -hmm. 
Like that's their bottom line. When you mm-hmm. get through all of their, oh, it's this and all of that, that's yeah. their bottom line. Trans women aren't women, right? right? And so I just skip to it. And any post or people want to say, I just go straight. This is their bottom line. You can waste three days fighting with people, but yeah. this is the bottom line. He's the same way. He's part of that mm-hmm. narrative. It's like, oh, this looks like caring. And it looks like we care for you. Right. You and I, it's okay, and um, all of those things around it, right? Just like Green, like Green was being hailed recently as this hero because he helped get homosexuality out of the DSM, right? And the fact of the matter is, is the larger community, as per on schedule, right, throws trans and gender fluid people under the bus because gender identity disorder was to catch baby homosexuals mm-hmm. and trans people. Like that's, that's, you know, I I don't need all the articulate academic language, but it was to get us so we didn't become adult homosexuals, period. That's, that's what the work was about or become trans. They said I wasn't trans because I never said I was a boy, but then they start discussing that I already knew how not to answer their questions because I had already been there when I was five. So I already knew not to give them certain answers and they were discussing how they saw me doing that. Right. Wow. Yeah. Because I was just like, I, I, I see you people, mm-hmm. scary grown-up people, <laughs> yeah. right? So, yeah, he's he's part of, you know, he's part of the problem. And he wants to use work like they all do. He's going to use, if he uses any of my work, then he's going to use it in a way that supports his narrative. For sure. So I didn't send, I didn't even respond. But it was, I had to call people because I had to teach like a half an hour after that. And I was just like shaking. Yeah. Which I was clear with my students because I use some of my work in class. I'm like, look, this dude just called me. So I'm a little shaky right now. <laughs> I, have so, I have so many thoughts and like feelings running through my head. So I guess I just like keep reacting to like this process of people continuously trying to extract data and like how dehumanizing that is to do that to someone and for their own it, I guess I'm slightly slightly surprised that none of those um, doctors see the harm at all like in the slightest my hope would be that at least one of them would see some of the damage and harm and I guess I'm trying to make sense of that <laughs> in my head it makes sense but at the same time my hope would be that someone would gain some insight along the way throughout all of these years that it's been since they first interviewed you. Yep. Nope. They don't see that it caused harm or if it was violent. Mm -hmm. And those were direct questions. I mean, part of getting the transcript for me was validating that I wasn't crazy. Mm -hmm. Like there was a very good thing that happened when I got it. I was like, okay, there's a lot of things that I coping mechanisms and a lot of things in my life that like, like, Oh, well, no wonder. Well, no wonder. Like, you're not making up the fact that you were, you know, at this clinic, you weren't, you're not crazy to think that there was these things happening. Um, I could, when I did my master's, I saw stuff for the effeminate boy study that I couldn't necessarily connect until I got the transcript as things that happened to me. For example, I ended up with a female therapist. My father stepped out of my life. Like I knew that intellectually and as a lived experience, but until I got the transcript, I couldn't put the effeminate boy study markers mm-hmm. and uh, treatments with my treatments, right? Mm-hmm. Except my lived experience. And so there was some va- there was lots of validation in that particular way. 
but also the struggle with doing the work is there's the there's the bleeding on the page right where you become the spectacle in a particular way right and so part of the work right now is using this to have a continued conversation without being the spectacle and that's very difficult because it's a very compelling story right it's a very compelling connection we all have to the medical industrial complex and our identities we it's a very compelling story because they're still doing conversion therapies there are still church camps there's still the zuckers they're anti-trans we we don't have to talk about people in dc right that are coming for us again and marriage didn't help us respectability politics doesn't help us and i don't need permission for you to agree with my humanity to be treated well six black trans women have been killed that we know of and i always add that that we know of right like in the past couple weeks right yes. like just in the matter right. of the last few weeks yes. and so in that sense my job with this project or my job with telling my story is how do we use it to be of service mm-hmm. the service to say this causes harm to human beings I was sitting at a table with academics when I was still a grad student. I got invited after the lecture to the big to the to the dinner after the lecture with one of the big lecturers. Mm-hmm. You know, okay. Right. And I'm sitting there with renowned scholars from the department here at Berkeley. And uh it was Ann Foster Sterling who wrote uh, Sex in the Body. So everyone's talking and they asked me what my work was on and I said Stoller and this and the clinic and that and she knew immediately who Stoller was and told someone else who Stoller was. So she goes, can I ask you a question? And I get this question a lot. And they uh, said, so what do you feel about hormone blockers for children? (laughs) So now that's a question that could blow your career up (laughs) or not blow your career up. And I have six really well-known scholars looking at me while I'm trying to figure out how to answer this question. And I get, I've been asked that question, but probably seven or eight times. Like, what do you think about children? What do you think about children? Mm -hmm. And my response to her at the table was, I think it's a matter of privacy between the doctor and the parents. Mm -hmm. But if the doctors and parents don't support the child, then I want every resource possible. So that child lives long enough so they can make their own decision. Right. But that's That's an interesting question. Right. It's an interesting question. Right. Because I use in vitro fertilization in my discussions. Right. As a body not doing what you want it to do with a social expectation of motherhood, children. Right. We have a million dollar industry now where if your body isn't doing something that you want to do and you feel the social pressure that you need to be a mother, Mm -hmm. you can go use the technology. Right. And you can you can have a child. Now, if I'm in a body and I don't want my breasts, for example, I have a mental illness. If I'm not getting larger breasts, only if I don't want them. Right. So in that sense, right, so the mental illness aspect of this, right, is that your body isn't doing something that you want and you have privacy and access to technology and now you can have a baby. I don't have that same access if I want to alter my body in non quote, normative, male-female, patriarchal, supporting, right, heteronormativity. I have a mental illness. 
And so how we use the medical industrial complex also becomes, right, access, disability access, right? So I have to say I have a mental illness, which I don't say, but, right, if I go into doctors, right, and I want access to hormone replacement treatments or if I want whatever surgeries that I want, I have to agree to the standards of care that say I have a mental illness, right? Right, to get which access. Because mm-hmm. totally constructed. By these men in these clinics. Mm-hmm. Now we need the diagnosis, so they made the mouse trap. Now we need the mouse trap for many people to get access to whatever treatments they and their doctors decide for themselves are the ones that they want. Especially when you look at the prison industrial complex, right? Where we're putting men in women's prisons and women in men like so mm-hmm. that's a place you still need. So how do we dismantle it while still trying to get access? I mean Zucker was on the committee. For the new DSM. That's like he so was, gross. He was, That's so he, gross. Yes. Yeah. Right. So the connection between Big Pharma and all of these things in the DSM makes the new DSM pretty delegitimate for most of us, right? Mm-hmm. Because of the connection between all the pharmaceutical companies and all of these right. new things. But Zucker was overseen and on the committee that looked at gender dysphoria. Like that's a conflict of interest. For sure. So this is like very informative for yeah. me. Like I didn't know about any of these things. And like, the only thing that I, like really like it sounds familiar are the Tuskegee mm-hmm. experiments and knowing that there's I mean again like it just falls into like that conspiracy theory but knowing that it's literally not a conspiracy it's just life for mm-hmm. certain people and it's been hidden like the fact that you were doing this and you found a case file of you when you were 8 just like blows my mind because that's the thing you would read in like a find like a movie and like yes like that's literally like a movie so i'm just like yo this is like blowing my mind right now so now i'm just listening to everything (laughs) well yeah you could literally turn your dissertation into a movie you know like that well it's in the people are yeah that's there are conversations about that funding and all of that really document yeah yeah so there's there is that, right? Right now, I'm trying to get a steady employment as a professor, which is impossible, mm-hmm. and pay my rent in the Bay Area, which oh, is gosh. possible. <laughs> I can imagine that. But the, back to the Tuskegee thing, right? So my friend's family, the connection in California is really interesting with migration in the military-industrial complex, right? Because his grandparents worked at Douglas Aircraft, and my grandfather came out to be security for Douglas Aircraft, which is how both our families uh, did upperly mobile movements, right, which, which were in Los Angeles in particular ways. The Nazis studied our sterilization practices and used them. like So the eugenics thread from Enlightened Science, Rockefeller, all of the eugenic science mm-hmm. is all wrapped up in this particular thing as well, right? Mm-hmm. And so sterilizing the Puerto Rican women. I just read somewhere recently, unfortunately, that they just were telling, I think, Native women in a particular state, they couldn't see their babies until they agreed to sterilization. Right. There was during the crack epidemic, there were billboards saying, We'll pay you money in black communities, all right, if you're sterilized. Right. And so if you set it within the structure, it is if if you go historically through colonization, right? Like the way in which colonial medicine framed bodies and difference and illness is the model that we still continually use on creating difference, mm-hmm. right? And it's a heteronormative, white-centered, 
colonial project. You can call it neocolonialism if you want, you know, if you want to be fancy, but that's where this decolonization is coming in, right? What does that really mean? And it means that I should have access and privacy with my doctor to technologies that I choose as an individual, right? That's where the abortion argument comes in, right? Like it's about a privacy issue. You don't need to know what I'm talking to my doctor about, and I should have access to any technology that I want. And so for me, watching a lot more people be more upset, rightfully so, about this abortion discussion right now is where have you been, as we all know, where have you been in the discussion about trans bodies and all of us, right, that want access to technologies? You weren't out fighting for us. Like, it's the same one around race. Where are white people when Timur Rice is killed, right? Mm-hmm. Why aren't you in the streets? Well, where are all these people when trans people are, are dying in the concentration camps at the border? So our limited outrage to our specific individual need, right, is completely framed on white supremacy and meritocracy. Even our politics on the left are that way. The right agreed that they just want power. So... <laughs> They just want power and they'll deal with 45 and they'll deal with all of the individual things because they want power. We still are doing that whole individual like my issue is still the most important issue. Well, abortion issue is about body autonomy. That is no different than any trans person who wants body autonomy. So why are you not fighting for our liberation as well? Right. When you expect us now to be outraged well most of us are outraged every day and if you're a person of color in the united states or indigenous you've pretty much been outraged since you were born right because of the structural and institutional ways my queerness does not my whiteness protects me my queerness doesn't right race doesn't protect any people of color right until that narrative is centered for white queers right we will continue to fail like we don't see that i was arrested in seattle for flipping a meter made off Teen officers showed up because after black and brown bodies, they come for queer bodies, mm-hmm. right? And they're gentrifying the Capitol Hill in Seattle. Fourteen officers showed up. I was arrested for second degree criminal assault. Oh I did not touch the person. Everybody knew said I didn't touch the person. I was going to jail because it was Saturday night at five o'clock uh, on an old queer street and part of gentrification, right? Is that if that many cops? I was going in irrelevant of what happened, right? So I already know people get kidnapped off the street. I did not need the experience of being kidnapped off the street to know that people get kidnapped off the street. Mm-hmm. Shorter story, gender search. So I didn't have drugs or a weapon, so they had me do an illegal strip search because all along they kept calling me, well, what's your gender? And it wasn't the teachable moment, so I was like female because that's what my ID said, and I didn't have my goatee at the time. I look like I do now. She had me bend over, but she didn't have me cough because they wanted to see if a dick dropped. No one believed me. Now, this, the story, the reason I tell this story is I asked my students, like, what's important about this story? Mm-hmm. Like, that was all violence. We can agree that it was horrifying. Like, yes, horrifying. But my whiteness protected me because I lived to experience the horrifying violence. Mm-hmm. Fourteen cops showed up. My whiteness protected me, Right. The way it doesn't protect folks of color. Now, I didn't need that lesson, and I not necessarily want that lesson, right? But it's a great lesson for white queers to really start to understand what communities of color are asking us to see. 
that's the moment, that line right there. And I do a lot of work on that line. And I, I don't do it well sometimes, right? But that line right there, if we can't get to that line and really understand that line as white queers, it's problematic. But yeah, so that was another horrifying, you know, arrest kind of thing. Yeah. Strip search. They asked, offered me solitary confinement. I'm like, no, I'm good. Oh, wow. Right? Because that's what they do to protect trans people or people they can't gender right yeah. right we'll put you in solitary mm -hmm. then the door opens in this small little cell of people and this one woman says why are you letting this man in here just like uh, if i was a man i wouldn't be in here so we the have a lot of work is broken it was designed it's working well it was designed to work that way yeah it was designed to work well and it's working well right mm -hmm. so yeah. Well, we are coming up on our one hour mark. Damn. Yeah, I know. I feel like it was like 20 minutes. I looked at the timer. I'm like, oh my gosh, this flew so quickly. I appreciate you sharing all of your story with us today. It's such important knowledge to have and things to reflect on. Mm -hmm. Appreciate it. Yeah. I appreciate the opportunity to try to, you know, continue to have us moving and understanding the complexity of all of our identities, right? And the right yeah. to be able to decide for ourselves. And what does that mean? And what are the actions behind it? And so trying to connect the historical and the contemporary, the fissure between those two, right? Which is back to the teeter-tottering thing. It's important to know how they developed this system. Right. That we are so fighting around gender. It is. Shameless plug time. So, if you have anything you'd like to shamelessly plug, please go ahead. <laughs> Tell us all the things. So, people can reach out if they want me to bring my art show and conversation to their local college or school, yes. or if they have an exhibit they want. Like, the exhibit can go. It's going to Merced from July 11th to July 20th. It'll be in a queer art gallery over there. Uh, hanging so it's a it's a it can be stationary or it can be put up for just a a conference panel. So if you want to get in contact with me, that's great. Otherwise, put me on the college circuit. Bring me to your school. Bring me to your town. You know, people ask me what to do. It's like, bring me. Yeah. What's the best, best way to get in touch with you? Email lbazul1414 at berkeley.edu. Great. Yeah, I can already think of some spaces that would be great to see that exhibit. I would love to see it in person. So that that's my shameless plug. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time. Employment. <laughs> right, yeah. Some full professor. So what like all of us. What is your PhD in? What kind of um, departments are you seeking positions in? Uh, women and gender studies, ethnic studies, uh, but only ethnic studies that are general call out, not specific. Uh, uh, you know, like if it's a call out for Asian American specific, I don't apply for those, right? Yeah. Because one has to but if it's a general call-out ethnic studies, I can do some anthropology because my, my degree is in cultural anthropology, a doctorate in philosophy. My undergrad is in ethnic studies, and my master's is in sociology. So I'm a mutt, as mm. they say, which is great because that's more what we need. We need the barriers in academia also to bring the walls down and be more – I'm not going to use the word because it's overplayed, but we need to all play well together. Yeah, great. <laughs> Better. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us today. Thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you so much. It was good listening to your story. All right, thanks for having me. Great. Have a good rest of your day. Bye.
Bye, YouTube. Bye. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Beyond Queer Stories. Also check out the creator of our podcast music, B. Studwell. She's an incredible queer artist from D.C., and you can check out her music at bstudwell.com. If you're listening to us on iTunes, don't forget to rate us so others will be able to find our podcast. Talk, Talk to you all, all next week. week. Next time on Beyond Queer Stories. Are you out at work? Like, yes. Nice. I, mm, I, I, well, let me amend that. I don't make any attempts to hide. Like, I'll openly say mm-hmm. my exes with male pronouns. Mm-hmm. Um, and nobody really cares. It's nice when you can see mostly just like be who you are and not feel like it needs to be a whole discussion. Mm-hmm. Bye. Bye. Bye.